Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a cloudy day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Jonathan Kelly. Jonathan is the co-founder of Origin Digital, an award-winning creative agency in County Down, Northern Ireland. Jonathan, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. It's great to be here, Scott. Thanks very much for for having me. It's an absolute pleasure having you, Jonathan. Now, um, leadership um, at the moment is really coming under the text, uh, under the test and uh, the current climate, isn't it, with the whole COVID-19 pandemic and business leaders having to adapt and lead their firms through that. Um, tell me, for somebody um, working in your industry, I presume where you have embraced remote working over the last few weeks, how has it actually been for you? Because I can imagine it's still been quite the challenge uh, trying to uh, get through all of this. Yeah, I think probably after the, the initial shock, we would we would count ourselves among the lucky, I suppose the lucky ones, if you like, because we we are able to do it with ninety percent, if not more, of of, of our work. Um, obviously, there's some some areas where the optimum result will be achieved by being in the same room, but in the main, once we we did the initial shift to work from home. You know, our team and our customers responded really well to that. Um, you know, so we've we've managed to, to make the transition, and I think in doing so, it's probably revealed a few areas uh, for flexibility in the future that we you know, we hope to carry on, and um, when we when we move into the next next phase. For certain, um, a lot of um, people have been saying that uh, this whole experience is going to fundamentally change the way that we go about doing business in the future. Is that something that you can see happening as well? Yeah, I think it's it's difficult to get perspective on it now, you know, in the midst of it. You know, and it's there's obviously been a massive um, and sudden change to how we do things, and I, I think that there will be you know there will be an after effect of that, and, and, and some of the positive things, as I, as I mentioned, working from home and the flexibility of that will come through. And I think there will be other, particularly in our industry, there will be other um, effects. You know, if, if we see you know, the, the data at the minute is showing that the, there's an upturn, obviously, in online sales, but also an upturn in the demographics who are adopting you know, online channels. You know, so potentially older demographics or maybe harder to reach people who are now looking at, at transacting online, and that's, that won't be forgotten. You know, so the people who have shifted in the past month, what may have taken... It may have taken five, ten years to shift them in, in normal circumstances, and um, so that 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 could be a positive for us, um, and potentially an area where where people who haven't existing haven't got existing um, customer experiences online will, will need to develop those. Um, Absolutely. Beyond that, beyond that, I, I don't. You know, it's it's difficult to say. You know, I think you know we 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 all have short memories, and it it won't be long before we snap back into some old routines. But I think been such a profound event that it would be amazing that 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 there wouldn't be some lag in terms of you know how we work how we live um you know our own outlook in terms of hygiene and um you know i think it'll be a long time before we forget to wash our hands every 20 minutes Absolutely. And um, we've already, of course, been um, in the uh, the UK lockdown for over um, a month now. And um, in Italy, in fact, uh, just um, I think it was either today or yesterday, for the listeners' benefit, we are recording this on the 27th of April 2020. Um, the Italians went into lockdown on the 9th of March. And what happened there is they have only just, I think, in the last couple of days, announced slight measures to ease the lockdown there following the longest lockdown of all of the European countries. And also the, um, I think it was also the highest number of cases um, in Europe that they've got in um, Italy as well. Um, but compared yeah. to the UK, of course, um, Italy did go into lockdown very quickly. Of course, they went into lockdown on the 9th and we went into lockdown on the 23rd. And in many ways, um, some of the criticisms of the government strategy here in the UK have been the tardiness it's taken to impose stricter measures, as it were. If we sort of um, take those sort of two approaches um, away from politics and away from crisis um, just for a moment there, uh, Jonathan, and think about that for a moment. And when you are leading your business, do you prefer to take a very 
dive straight in, hands-on approach to leadership when difficulties arise and getting on top of them and dealing with them as soon as possible? Or do you prefer to sit back, let matters play out a little bit and then take measured action from there? I think it's probably a mix of both, Scott. I think we, in the early days, you know, we're in business now um, coming up on 14 years. You know, We set up in 2006 and um, obviously, at that point, we were a very small agency, and we're still a, we're still a relatively small agency, um, with you know, with a team that you know, a size that gives us the ability to move quickly, and we're we're lighting our feet. But I think experience has told us not to dive in to certain situations and to dive in to others. Um, you know, so in the in the early days of trading, we, we would have been quite reactive to to revenues, for example. Mm. We would make decisions and change direction to to follow revenue because you got you've got to survive. Um, whereas as you get more experience, you realise that consistency and and consistency of direction um, reaps longer term benefits. You see, you know, it, it takes a while to learn that. Um, and I suppose it's a similar thing when it, whenever you get a crisis like this um, coming along, doesn't happen very often, if ever, in a lifetime. Um, there's a tendency to to want to, to to make snap judgments, you know, mm. in the in, in the first week, for example, before the government had worked out the the, the economics package for for business, there was a was a real panic. Do we need to make people redundant? You know, what's is this going to be three months of no revenue? How do we how do we manage that? Um, and then and in fairness, you know, you mentioned there the you know, were we too early? Were we too late going into lockdown? I think probably now is not the time to to be analysing that until we're out and I'm sure it, it will be analysed today but I think one of the things potentially that that was was right was the, the speed at which um, the economics benefits packages and, and grants packages were, were announced for, for small and large businesses. Now obviously there's been potentially some delays in the availability of that money but I think those the, the way it was managed at least took one problem off the table for businesses so that they could focus on on the on the other side. You know, we, we, in our own circumstances, we were able then to to use the furloughing program mm. and to 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 look at you know short term and you know and aim to retain as many, um, if not all of our people, um, for as long as we can. Um, so yeah, I think that was a roundabout way of saying. It's a mix of both um, dive in where we think we need to make quick decisions and take stock and take a breath you know, in, in other situations. Mm. And it really has tested um, the adaptability um, of businesses and the ability of both leaders and employees to be reactive and to be able to make decisions based on changing guidance and changing circumstances. And we do often hear as well that times of difficulty and times of crisis do often bring out the best in people. Um, have you seen that borne out um, in your own company, Jonathan, would you say, during this time? 100%. You know, I think you know, whenever you're you know, the, the old cliche, I suppose, is um, the sign of leadership is creating other leaders around you. And um, one of the things in our own in our own business context was the, that our team, to a, to a person, um, really stood up and, and took responsibility. You know, they uh, and in, in that respect, made life easier for us running the company um, because people went above and beyond in terms of flexibility, in terms of delivery, in terms of understanding. Really appreciate, and I think that's probably because this is such a universal event. Mm-hmm. Everyone's aware of the context, um, you know, so you know, people have obviously personal concerns. But you know, in our circumstances, we've been you know, really lucky in that our, our team have all stepped up and, and, and shared the responsibility and, and collectively um, helped help the company adapt and, and continue to to move forward even in tough circumstances. 
And that's so, so important, isn't it? And um, one thing as well that um, you talked about um, earlier, Jonathan, as well, was the importance of experience. Do you think that there are positives to take from this experience, from a leader's and an employee's point of view in one's development, really? Because often we find that when people are stretched and thrown out of their comfort zone and having to push the boundaries, it brings the best out of them, as we see in times of difficulty. And that's important, isn't it, in really um, helping people uh, develop and better their skills? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm always a firm believer that you know the that pressure reveals cracks, and you know it, it's it's the best opportunity to see where the cracks and the gaps in your and what you do personally or what you do as a business. Um, um, and and also it it reveals opportunities because you have to be more creative, for instance, around business development. You know, it's we're not currently in ideal business development circumstances because we can't meet with customers or, or potential customers. Um, so we've got to be more creative about, for instance, how we use content or you know, how we um, behave on social media. So um, I do think absolutely this will, you know, and, and we like to take an optimistic view on things, but I think this will, the lasting legacy of this will be that we are more creative as a business. Um, particularly around how we develop and, and, and sell our, our proposition. It is um, certainly going to be a changing time for business and business is going to have to um, innovate to be able to seize on the opportunities um, that this will offer because there will be opportunities, of course, as well as uncertainty. And um, one thing that you did mention um, as well, Jonathan, is um, the importance of being a leader in terms of making other leaders around you and inspiring other people, as it were. Um, is, are there any examples of um, people who've maybe been an inspiration to you throughout your life and your career that you can think of? Um, I think there's been a number. Um, I, you know, and funny. My I was talking to my wife about this recently, and I've never really had a a business mentor, if you like. And I definitely, I think it's something that I should seek out. And I've been thinking about it you know, in in the in the quiet moments here. Uh, but I, I think going back, you know, my parents are are a big influence on still a big influence on and on my ethics and you know, how I treat people on the communication side of things. Um, I can also look back at different people that I've worked under um, and how they how they manage relationships, you know, how they you know, how they think strategically. And I think that's a big part of leadership is that you, know, you have to have an eye on the bigger picture. Um, so I, I suppose I've cherry-picked bits and pieces from different people throughout my life and career um, and tried to pick up the positives, but also the negatives. You know, I've, I've worked under people who, who maybe didn't have the leadership qualities or style that I would, that would resonate with me. Uh, and as such, it hasn't motivated me. So I've, I've made sure, I'm, I'm sure I've slipped a lot, but I've made sure to, to take that on board and, and take note not to replicate that or catch myself if I see myself replicating those traits. Mm. So in terms of the positive traits that you've uh, sort of picked up and try to um, impose on your own style of leadership, um, what would you say um, sort of those are and how would you describe your own leadership style? Uh, well, I think I mentioned earlier, a big thing is take responsibility. Mm. You know, whatever walk of life it is, business, um, sport, um, domestic, you've got to take responsibility. And a leader needs to have a, to have a, a vision of the bigger picture. Um, and then the ability to communicate in a way that motivates and inspires the people here and working with with you to to try and achieve that vision. Um, and then within that, there's a lot of softer interpersonal skills that I think are required to connect with people, to, to find out what what makes people tick, um, and to get them to connect with you and believe in you. Um, Beyond that, I think there's there's other characteristics that I think you know, probably everyone needs to be successful. You know, things like resilience, um, you know, a healthy mix of of optimism and realism, um, the ability to keep your head when things are are getting you're in a tight spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I suppose the the core values that you know I mentioned with parents are but the core values that that you have as a person in terms of honesty, ethics, empathy, um, they're all key. You know, and generosity, you know, I think, is, is important too. I always remember 
watching Jack Welsh, the former GE CEO, speaking, and he, he said one of the key things that he thought was the generosity gene, the ability to to you know, to to like to see other people doing well, you know, and not begrudge that. Um, a lot of reports suggest that he wasn't <laughs> totally um, totally truthful in his belief in that, but. Yeah, I do think that's a good point. Actually, you got to see, you got to surround yourself with good people. I like to see mm. them doing well. I think that's um, absolutely uh, vital um, as a leader to uh, surround yourself with people who you can nurture the best out of, but also vice versa. And what you really highlighted as well, Jonathan, that was important there is um, not to focus necessarily on short-term gain but focus on the bigger picture and I think if we were going to issue some advice to the younger generations of emerging leaders that's one of the most important things isn't it not to be sort of blinded by visions of short-term gain not to get disheartened if you know the success isn't immediate but to have some perseverance and think of the long term yeah I think if if I was advising myself um, you know, back 20 years ago, I would be thinking along those lines. You know, firstly, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't focus on on money, you know, because I think that's a tendency when when you're earlier in your career, earlier in your business, you focus on making money, and and it's quite a short term. You know, it's, it's an essential thing to do, um, but if you're only focusing on that, it's a very short term strategy. I think. It should be you know, my view now would be that you've got to focus you know, a lot of your activity is an investment in the future of the business. You know, so um, there's no problem on focusing on activities that may pay you back further down the line. You know, so that longer term view on on the strategy, you know, what you're working towards. Um, you know, because you know, it's very simply if you don't know what you're working towards and whether it's three years or five years or however many years you're you're planning ahead. If you don't know what's there, um, you won't make the right moves on a daily basis to get there. Or if you do, you'll, you'll be very lucky to get there. Um, so that's, you know, I don't know whether it's a control thing or you know, maybe that's a personality type, but that that ability to look ahead and make make the make the micro steps on a daily basis um, and then have a ways of checking in to, to see how you're getting along on the path is a key thing. To pick up, and I think experience brings that. Um, but don't be diverted by short-term things. Now, revenue has to be to be made to, to pay overhead and pay salaries, but it shouldn't be your your driver. You know, you should be considering it as a as a longer journey, and you're you're making investments along the way, which hopefully you'll draw down as the years go go along. Exactly. Yeah, um, I can agree wholeheartedly with that Jonathan and um, if we do think about um, the future once more before we do wrap things up on today's program um, do tell me what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and for Origin Digital and what you hope to achieve collectively in that time particularly in navigating the current COVID-19 situation and then emerging from the other side of the pandemic. Yeah well that's the first thing we've got to you know after having spoken a lot there about long-term thinking we do have to make you know, to make sure that we get through the short term as best as possible, so that we're in a position to to yeah, and we set a platform to move forward when when things go back to, to relative normal. And uh, so I see the next couple of months, you know, of us of us managing that process of, of we're really on a we're really on a war footing, really, where we're you know, we're we're making sure our cash flow is managed, we're making sure our people and morale are are good. We're making sure we look after our core client base and look after our customers. And we're trying to creative, be creative about um, locking in new business opportunities. And that that next stage when we go back, you know, I, I would imagine like, like a lot of businesses were concerned about potential lag effects of of the lockdown. We haven't had our normal ability to to generate new business or, or fill a sales pipeline. So there is potential that you know, that we could feel the effects of that in three or four months' time, where we the work that we're normally kind of the business we're normally running now is not maybe coming through as strongly as it, as it would normally do. And but after that, you know, we're we're now looking at well, you asked the question earlier, what's life going to be like afterwards? Um, and I have no doubt that you know, 
most companies, if not all, will have some um, type of, of digital aspiration you know, that, that has been generated because because of this event. Um, and you know, again, we're lucky because that's the space we operate in. You know, we're a creative digital agency, um, so we can help companies. And we've experienced helping companies through digital transformation, right through to the implementation of those customer experiences. Um, so I just think we need to be looking at the, the sectors that we need to help um, and how do we communicate with those sectors and, and, and make our proposition known to them, um, as well as then helping our, our existing clients through through um, whatever changes. And again, we talked about the pressure and revealing the cracks, and I'm sure a lot of companies out there have, have seen either gaps or opportunities that that we can help them help them understand and realize. Um, so yeah, I think that's the short term is be there and be strong when we get back. The medium term is to is to develop business like mad so that we offset any lag effects um, and then push forward to help companies um, you know, with, with digital transformation and online customer experience projects. Mm. Sounds like there's an awful lot of ambition among the uncertainty, Jonathan. And uh, what I think would be fantastic for the listeners is if in a few months' time, once we start to uh, see the fog lifting a little bit, we could maybe have you back on the air and look at this retrospectively and just catch up on how the business is doing. But today, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure and really, really insightful having you on the programme. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. A pleasure. No, to Scott. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure having you, Jonathan. Thank you. That was uh, Jonathan Kelly, co-founder of Origin Digital. Uh, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of 
those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. 
Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting 
developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders ideas the ability to build a team to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice sometimes at the most difficult times and you know the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.